Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. What a great video. Glad to be with you this morning, church. Uh, I got to get me one of them Jesus t-shirts. That's just cool. It's ridiculous, right? I know we introduced that phrase to you last week. Thank you to everybody who this week have said last week's message was ridiculous. I appreciate it, especially those of you over 40 who Facebooked me saying that was totes ridic. <laughs> I told my wife, I've created a monster. But uh, So last week we s- talked about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God and examined how that claim is ridiculous unless it's true, unless it changes lives and it changes me and unless I share it it seems ridiculous unless any of those things happen and so this week this year for Easter we're saying Easter is ridiculous Pastor Ben talked about invite somebody use this card to invite somebody I I guarantee it will cause them to ask you questions why is Easter ridiculous are you aren't you a Christian (laughs) yes I am but hopefully it'll spawn some conversation about why the claims of Easter are ridiculous Unless it's true. Unless Jesus did what he said he would do. He rose from the dead and brings us new life. And the best way to prove that is your own life. And so we're praying that you'll invite somebody and uh, be part of our Easter offering and all the great things that are going to be happening that day. I know the kids are doing a big Easter egg thing. And so they're looking for eggs and candy and stuff like that. Talk to Pastor Ginger about that when you drop your kids off today. How you can help them out. So we've been examining the book of John and the claims that Jesus makes throughout the book of John. If you haven't had a chance to read it, I encourage you this week to begin to read through uh, the claims that Jesus makes throughout the, the book of John. And this week we want to talk about how Jesus claimed to be perfect. How his followers and even his foes claimed the same thing, that he was perfect. And that we as his followers today are, are claiming something even more ridiculous, that what happened 2,000 years ago affects and changes our lives today that what he did 2,000 years ago provides for our salvation. How many of you have ever said the phrase, well, nobody's perfect, right? You ever said, said that phrase? Have you heard somebody say it? Hey, nobody's perfect. This is how I feel when someone says that to me. Show that picture. That picture, there it is. That's what I want to do, Right? That's a meme for those of you who may not know. It's a meme Nobody's perfect, but Jesus is. Please don't hit people who, who say that. Jesus claimed to be perfect, and we as his followers claim that he is perfect. I'm a recovering perfectionist. There are several things in my life that I have tried to be perfect in. And my wife reminds me, there are things that are of no consequence that I try to be perfect in. Maybe you can identify with some of these things, like this one. Watch this video. (laughs) I love that lady as she walks by, like, totally normal. Come on, how many of you are like that, right? You got to do that. Totally a rookie mistake when you do the classic over-squeeze, but. Sometimes we reach for for perfection in things that, that... just don't matter. What about things that do matter? I I know for me, uh, growing up and and into college, academics were a a big thing for me. And I I felt like that's an area I could could reach perfection. I could get that 100%. I could get those straight A's. And when I couldn't, I was very frustrated. So much so that my ninth grade year, 
I, I nearly had a nervous breakdown because within the first three days of school, can you gather that, three, first three days, I had already set a standard of perfection for myself. Because you know the stress that high schoolers are under. You know, they're trying to get to college and pay for it through scholarships and get good grades and get in the right school and all these things. Well, I felt that. Th- those first three days, I thought, if I screw this assignment up, it's over. I remember just kind of losing it. My dad walks in and he's like, what is going on? And I was like, I can't get this. I'm not going to be perfect. And my whole high school, I'm just going to fail. And, uh, you know. and he said, hey, chill. Nothing's worth that kind of stress. Just do your best. You're never going to be perfect. Just do your best. And I thought, well, you don't know me. I have to be perfect. It was the same way uh, in being a musician. Like, that was what I did. I was a musician. I had to be perfect. That, you know, the notes are on the page. They're meant to be played perfectly. Then my band director took me from orchestra music to jazz. What? And then he said, and let's improvise. I can't. Where's the sheet music for that? There is none. What? How will I know if I'm perfect then? It's all about being creative in the moment. Oh, I couldn't do that. I think that's why I had problems with Jesus and his claims of perfection. It annoyed me that Jesus was perfect. But the view I had on Jesus' perfection was probably, not just probably, it was off. Because I had this idea that Jesus, if Jesus played the saxophone like me, he'd always play it perfectly. He, when he sight read he, uh, he, a piece of music, he would never miss a note. And if Jesus and I would go golfing together, guess what? Jesus, that's the 12th hole in one for crying out loud. Like he would never miss. If we played hoops together, Guess who'd win? Jesus. He would never miss a shot. This was the kind of perfection that I envisioned of Jesus. Things that probably weren't of any sort of consequence, but that's what I measured myself by and compared myself to and then competed with. Like you can compete with Jesus, right? I mean, he's got a t-shirt that says Jesus. <laughs> but he would always win at everything. And I, I, I was just a failure because I could never win at everything. So I couldn't comprehend that Jesus could understand my life, my failure. And yet, the Bible says we know that he does identify. But it's because of his perfection that he can identify with you and me. But I felt like I had to be perfect for two reasons, really. One, I wanted others to know that I was perfect. Right? I had this view that other people and their opinions of me mattered. The second reason was I really wanted the control. Because I, I felt like on that video, the good meter that my, my deeds would add up. And they would, you know, they'd balance out. I'd have more good stuff than bad stuff, hopefully. But that's not the gospel. That's certainly not what Jesus came to do, was help you balance out the good and the bad stuff. So today I want to examine the claims that Jesus made about himself about being perfect. Understand this. I want to make this distinction because I think this will help you as it helps me. Jesus didn't just live a perfect life. See, that was my, my vision of who Jesus was. He lived a perfect life. 
But it was the perfect life that I imagined, you know, always hitting the hole-in-one and every basketball shot he ever took. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life in that he set himself a standard that was of God's standard, not of earthly standard. We're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning. Jesus lived the perfect life. You know, there was proclamations of Jesus' perfection throughout the Gospels and, and throughout the Bible, many by his friends and followers. But I wanted to focus a little bit at first on the proclamations of his perfection by his foes, yeah, the, the people that weren't on his side. Here's, here's a few. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the very one who betrayed Jesus, said this, after having betrayed Jesus before he took his own life, he says, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. The miscarriage of justice was acknowledged by the person least likely to have done so. This is a powerful testimony that the hostile witness in all of this is testifying to Jesus' innocence, his perfection. What about Pilate, Pontius Pilate? the judge who provide, uh, presided over Jesus' trial. His wife, even, it's recorded in Scripture, Pilate's wife said to him, have nothing to do with that just man. You don't want to get yourself involved in this. He is a just man. But like any good man, he didn't listen to his wife. So Pilate says this of Jesus, I find no crime in him. I find no crime in him. There was nothing of the charges that were brought against him that Pilate could charge Jesus for rightfully. How about the Roman centurion, the executioner of Jesus, said, as Jesus is on the cross dying, certainly this was a righteous man. And what of this? That a Roman centurion who is used to the violence and the execution of criminals, many who I can imagine proclaim their innocence. But I'm innocent. Well, every good criminal is innocent, right? At least that's what they proclaim. But Jesus made no such claims on the cross. And yet it was the Roman centurion who made the claim of Jesus and his righteousness in that moment. What self-serving motive could have inspired this man to make such claim. Jesus lived the perfect life. But he lived the perfect life in a way that's different than you and I may maybe imagine of the way Jesus lived. And we know Jesus learned and he grew. So it's not like he came out of the womb speaking. He had to learn and grow. And so we know this of his perfection. This is what we're going to land on today. First, Jesus lived the perfect life in relationship with the Father. With the Father God. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says this. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. There's proximity in this. There is close relationship in what Jesus is saying. I do what I see the Father doing. He goes on in John chapter 8, verse 29 to say this. The one who sent me 
is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. He speaks of this relationship. You find throughout the Gospels that Jesus went to spend time alone with his Father in prayer. It's this that I argue gives him the relationship, the perfect relationship. Because there was proximity with his Father. He stayed close to the Father. Second, Jesus lived the perfect life in reliance on the Father. You heard him say in just those two previous scriptures that he would do nothing by himself. And he repeats this again in John chapter 5, verse 30. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And then in John 8, 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Again, it speaks of relationship, but also reliance on the Father. We see in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, his reliance on the Father. When tempted, at his very weakest point, after 40 days of fasting, going without food, the tempter, Satan, comes to him and says, hey, tell this stone to turn into bread. Feed yourself. Meet your own needs. Jesus says, no. The word says that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, he's relying on the Father. The third thing is, he lived the perfect life in response to the Father. Again, that the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 5 is a perfect scene as he's in this desert. He's being tempted in his weakness, and yet he does not sin. He responds perfectly to the Father in obedience, not meeting his own needs, but relying on his Father and then responding in obedience. I, see that, I think we see that in Scripture, that Jesus follows the law of Scripture perfectly. He follows the law perfectly. The law was given so that we, finite beings, might be able to relate to an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, just, and righteous God. This is, was given, the law, the Old Testament was given so that we might relate to a being we have n- no comprehension of. Jesus followed each of those laws. John chapter 8, verses 45 through 47 says this. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Let, this, let me set this up a little bit. John chapter 8, there's a great discourse, really an argument, between the Pharisees, the religious ruling class of the day, and Jesus. And throughout John, you kind of see Jesus arguing with this group of people. It's, it's kind of entertaining. At least in my brain, I, you know, I play it out like a movie. So Jesus is pushing back on them. He's saying, look, I am who I say I am. I tell you the truth, and you don't believe what I'm telling you. He goes on in verse 46. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? You'll notice that throughout the discourse in John chapter 8 and the rest of the book, that the Pharisees have no charge against them. They just simply want to kill him because they feel He's blaspheming God. They can't comprehend that he might actually be the Messiah. 
goes on to say, if I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Oh, snap. He would go on to say, I know who your father is. And they say, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're sons of Abraham, right? That's their, that's their patriarch. That's the guy. We're, we're his sons. We come directly from him. We're followers of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not. I come from my father, and you come from your father, and it's not Abraham. If your father was truly Abraham, if you were truly his sons, you wouldn't be trying to kill me without just cause. And even with just cause, the law would require several different things before you could execute me. He says, I know who your father is, the devil. I don't think he said it like that, but it's way more entertaining that way. He says, I know who your father is. Your father is the devil. Of course, they... They hit the ceiling at that. We're sons of Abraham. He said, no, no, no. You think you are. Later, Jesus, in addressing the apostles at the Passover supper, would say this. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, that is Satan, and he has nothing on me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Satan has nothing on me. He can't accuse me of breaking any law. While Satan accuses us, the followers of Jesus, he could not accuse Jesus. He had done nothing wrong. He had followed literally the letter of the law. Satan could not sidetrack the redemptive mission of Jesus because he followed the law perfectly. But is that good enough? Jesus would simply follow the law perfectly, right? that he could, he could live up to some rules. No, it wasn't enough. And that was never the intent. Because the second thing is, not only did Jesus follow the law perfectly, he fulfilled the law perfectly. See, the goal of the law was always to draw us closer to God the Father. But what it would do is reveal our sinfulness, our inability to even follow the rules set before us. It would simply show the rebellion that we had deep-seated in our hearts. And it would never meet the righteous requirements in the end because once a year there would have to be made a sacrifice of a perfect spotless lamb to atone for the sins of the people. And so the law would be perpetual the sacrifice would be perpetual, on and on, forever. So it wasn't enough that Jesus simply followed the law. He came and died as the perfect sacrifice to fulfill the law. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5 says. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It is fulfilled. Jesus followed the law perfectly, but he then fulfilled the law perfectly because he submitted to the will of the Father. The will of the Father was that we would come back in to relationship. And because Jesus was the willing servant to submit himself even unto death in that final moment of prayer 
in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would pray, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. It's in this that he fulfills the law perfectly. It's the perfect sinless sacrifice as the climax of the sinless life. It wasn't just enough that Jesus lived a sinless life. It's that he died the perfect sacrificial death in our place. As the climax, as John Piper says it, as the climax of the perfect sinless life. R.C. Sproul, the theologian in his book, Essential Truths of Christian Faith, he writes this. The sinlessness of Christ does not merely serve as an example to us. It is a fundamental and, necess- and necessary for our salvation. Had Christ not been the lamb without blemish, he not only could not have secured anyone's salvation, but would have needed a Savior himself. The multiple sins Christ bore on the cross required a perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice had to be made by one who was sinless. He would go on to say this, It was by his sinlessness that Jesus qualified himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. However, our salvation requires two aspects of redemption. It was not only necessary for Jesus to be our substitute and receive the punishment due for our sins, he also had to fulfill the law of God perfectly to secure the merit necessary for us to receive the blessings of God's covenant. Jesus not only died as the perfect for the imperfect, the sinless for the sinful, but he lived the, perfect, the life of perfect obedience required for our salvation. This was the redemptive mission. Not that he would simply follow the law perfectly, but that he would fulfill the law perfectly. The book of Hebrews points us to Christ's perfection and why it was a necessity of the Son of God to be perfect. Look what the book of Hebrews says. There's four kind of key scriptures throughout Hebrews. Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way was tempted as we are yet without sin. How about Hebrews 7? He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What about the next two? Hebrews 2. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. In Hebrews 5, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus lived the perfect life so he could die the perfect death, one for all, once and for all. He met the righteous requirements of the law, and it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. We sang that song this morning. Christ is enough for me. It's sufficient. Nothing more is left to do. It has been accomplished. It has been fulfilled in Christ. Why, was, why must we keep striving to add to what Christ did? Because we cannot. Christ lived perfect in relationship to the Father. And because of that, we can live in relationship with the Father through Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life in reliance on the Father, and so we too, through faith, can rely on the Father who is faithful and good. 
and because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Because he responded in obedience by faith in his Father, we too can have such faith in our good, heavenly, perfect Father. You know, oftentimes as I'm talking with people, whether they're believers or not, there seems to be two themes of their responses as we talk about faith. One is to say, well, I'm just not good enough. I just can't live up to it. And I say, you're right. You cannot. I cannot. I cannot be good enough. I can't outwork the work that Christ has already done. I can't add to it. But then I hear them say something else. Jeremy, you just don't know what I've done. As if God cannot forgive you. As if the bad you've done is so bad, God couldn't have possibly foreseen that your sin would be so bad, right? He neglected. He didn't plan that out correctly. So I, you know, sarcastically remind, you're you're right. You're the exception. God overlooked you. He wasn't planning on your badness. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't count on that. He's probably twiddling his thumbs up there going, oh dear, what am I going to do? You're not good enough at being bad enough. Christ is good enough. And that's all the good enough you need. To believe in his name and to place your faith in the work that he did in living a perfect life, dying in our place, your place, And raising again from the dead. Until you can raise yourself from the dead, you ain't going to be good enough. Jesus lived perfectly so we wouldn't have to. In theology, we use words like atonement, justification, righteousness, propitiation. All pointing to the fact that what Jesus did covers it all. It covers it all. Everything in your past that you drag along as an anchor saying, well, God can't. No, I I mess up. It's let it go. Let it go. Don't let it hold you back anymore. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But it's true. We can trust that the covering covers everything in our past. And we don't have to continue in sin. That's the power of the resurrected life in the believer. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, what does the scripture say? Lives in who? Me. It lives in us. You don't have to be slaves any longer to sin. I love the promise of Romans chapter 8. The apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome in verse 3 and 4 says this. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Listen, the law was weak. It could never bring salvation. It was weak in that it only revealed our sinfulness. So what did God do? He took care of it. He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful human flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit of God. This is what I'm telling you today. Because of the perfect life of Jesus, we too can walk by that same Spirit. I I know what you're thinking. Well, Jesus was 
Well, he's perfect. He was the son of God. He was divine. Yes, but you forget what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something that he could grasp onto. Instead, he released it. He released the divine nature to live completely as a human being, relying dependently on his Father and the power of the Holy Spirit living in him. Can I get an amen? Amen. I need that. So when you and I say, as a justification of our sin, we say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. This is what I want to say. Put it up on the screen. Stop using it as an excuse for sin. Well, you know, Pastor, nobody's perfect. I understand that. Trust me. But I should no longer continue in my sin because of the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. You know, when I tried to reach for perfection, you know who I was mad at? God. I was mad at God. How ridiculous is that? God, I can't reach perfection. I'm frustrated. God would simply remind me, I didn't ask you for perfection. You see, the thing about trying to reach good on your own and perfect on your own is that you'll be held to your perfection or you will be held to Christ's perfection. In that very very first video, when you try to measure up, it will never measure up. But you don't get it both ways. You don't get to come to God on your own. You must come to God by His own Son. That's the only way. I have to say my perfectionism was driven by the, by the ability to quantify following the rules. You know what I mean? Like how many of you are list makers and box checkers? Did that, did that, nailed that one. God, I'm awesome at that, <laughs> right? Because I, c- I felt good. I could measure it. But Jesus didn't come so I could follow rules. He came to make a way to have relationship with God the Father. I think it's perfectly illustrated in this last story of Nicodemus, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I, don't want you, I want you to watch this video. This morning we share in communion together. It's the reason we gather each Sunday. It's what we're commanded to do, to celebrate the death that brings life to those who would believe. We serve an open communion, mean, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do need to be a follower of Christ. As the ushers prepare to serve us the elements of communion, we've changed the elements just a little bit in terms of how they're served. There are open cups and a a piece of bread in the middle of the tray that you'll want to take. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is very important. We would love for you to partake with us this morning in communion. But you need to do something that's very important. You need to commit your life to Christ. Accept and believe and place your faith that He lived the perfect life. He died in your place to bring you new life and forgiveness of your sins. Church, as we take the elements this morning, let's each take a moment to reflect on what it is that Christ has done for us, what He's provided and accomplished for us in His perfect life.
as we finish serving. You know, we celebrate the perfect life of Jesus in this moment. But it's that perfection that eventually would be broken as he took my sin upon himself. It's so incongruent. That Christ's perfection would be marred by my sin. Our sin. And so it's in the moment of that meal together that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you because of my rebellion, because of my sin. It's not because I did things wrong like I stubbed my toe or I colored outside the lines. It's that I rebelled against God. I rejected him and I ran from him. I cursed him. And so Jesus' perfection traded places with me. That's why we celebrate the broken body. It's our brokenness that Christ took upon himself. Father, we thank you for the perfection of Jesus that took our place, that took our sin and our imperfection. And so we thank you and we remember that your perfection is transferred to us the moment we believe and we stand with proper legal standing and proper relational standing as adopted sons and daughters with all rights as heirs. Let's eat of the bread together. After the meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. This is what would seal the deal. His death would pay for my sin, for my debt. It would cover me. It would, it would finish it. It would accomplish and fulfill everything that was ever needed for you and for me. Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that washes us and brings us into complete right standing with you. We receive forgiveness. We receive your grace. And ultimately new life. That starts the moment we receive you and extends on for eternity. And so we thank you and we celebrate the death that brings life. Let's drink of the cup together. Church, would you stand with me? As I bless you today, I pray you walk in the knowledge of perfection, that you are being perfected into the image of Jesus every day as you submit 
to Him. Let me bless you this morning as you leave this place. As you invite people to Easter with the claim that Easter is ridiculous, you might want to be prepared when you hand someone that card when they ask you questions like, what does that mean? Why is Easter ridiculous? Be prepared for that. Don't forget our next classes tonight at 6 o'clock and College Connect right after this service. Let's pray. Father, bless your people as we have chosen to dedicate our lives to you and following you into proclaiming and representing you to this world around us. Would you bless your people as we go from here to be light and salt in this community and around the world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We love you. Look forward to seeing you tonight and then again next week. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information, please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.